Hi, I'm Mickey Lowe. Hi, I'm Bishop Todd. And welcome, welcome to, to the C4SO, C4SO podcast. podcast. What's up, Bishop Todd? I'm good. You know, I've been thinking we've been doing this for a while now. We're kind yeah. of getting the, we're getting the hang of it. It's a really fun time. I feel like we're we're really getting in our groove. This may be a good time to try something different. Uh, what? I, I was actually going to ask if you were cool with me maybe turning the tables on you in Uh-oh. this intro. Okay. And, you know, before we get into this awesome conversation with your friend, yeah. Tomlin, which I'm yeah. very excited to share. Actually, one of the things that we ask him, being, you know, a proper English gentleman, yeah. is what American faux pas does he, does he think is funny or, you know, what, what, what he thinks about us is humorous. Yeah. Uh, I was going to ask you kind of the opposite is maybe what oh, UK yeah. English thing do you think is funny and or a funny story about you maybe breaking a cultural rule yeah, over these, there? I don't know. It, I, I've it, heard it, that there's a funny story in there somewhere. It seems to me that these things tend to be bodily. So like I, <laughs> okay. I think back to Bible school. I was going to Calvary Chapel Bible School up in Twin Peaks, California, up in the mountains. So I this was 1978. So I was like, 22 years old, maybe. Okay. And there were a few English students in there. And, and one of the first days the class was over and, you know, everybody was filing out of the room and this young Englishman says to this young woman, Hey, I'll knock you up at three. Oh. And we're, we're all like, what? We're all like, what the heck? <laughs> and so we didn't know what to say, of course. Um, mm. uh, but then I think a few days later we heard the phrase, well, we'll ring you up at three. So uh-huh. we quickly learned that to knock you up means I'll come knock on your door. <laughs> yeah. So I, that one stands out. And then when I was in England once speaking to this enormous crowd in, oh, Royal Albert Hall, I think it was. And I'd been speaking for two or three days at this seminar. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can just kind of tell the crowd's getting a little tired. I'm getting a little tired. It's our last break and the last afternoon of the last day. Mm-hmm. And so I'm about to say, I know y'all have been sitting on your, and in that moment I realized, oh, I got to choose this word carefully. Oh no. So I choose the most benign word I can think of that just sounds totally soft. So I say, I know y'all have been sitting on your fannies the last few days, <laughs> but just so I you to get up and take a break. And the crowd got like all of a sudden like mortifyingly silent and they started walking out. And I remember these old ladies, a few handful of old ladies came up and handed me a note telling me that Fanny is actually a very inappropriate way to refer to a woman's privates. So there you go. Nice. Two nice. bodily faux pas. Well, now we know. Yeah. <laughs> now we know. We'll never say that. Totally. Anyway, <laughs> so I am so excited, and I know you are too, Bishop Todd, to share the conversation today with Graham Tomlin, who is the yeah. director of the Center of Cultural Witness. And today we get to speak with him about the brand new initiative, Seen and Unseen, Christian Perspectives on Just About Everything. Bishop Todd, why don't you share a little bit more about what that's what that is? Well, I think I love what Graham's doing because I've always been kind of an, am- I say an amateur sociologist of religion an nice. amateur missiologist. And that really is the way I think of myself. But I love what Graham's doing because he's trying to um, work at the intersection of gospel culture and church. And that's mm-hmm. just what I've always loved. And as you'll hear in our interview, uh, Graham has a unique way of getting at that. I really admire what they're doing. Yes, we're excited to share more about this website that is going to be uh, offering Christian perspectives on things that happen in culture, both where they are rooted and around the world. So we are 
So excited to share with you all today, the conversation with Graham Tomlin. Graham, thank you so much for joining us today on the C4SO podcast. We're so excited to have you. That's great to be here. Very nice to see you, Mickey and Todd. I know that people listening to this can't see us, but um, I can see you on the screen. Yes. And it's um, very good to have a conversation today. Yes, yes. So we would love to get um, just to know you, get to know you, let our listeners get to know you a little oh. bit. And so Todd and I kind of came up with a couple of fun questions. So first off, uh, most people could tell by your accent that you are not from the States. You are no, from, you are currently in London, correct? That's right. Yep. Yep. Okay. I'm right now in the middle of London. Okay. So we'd just love to know for kicks, what American faux pas do you find the most humorous? So don't go easy on us. What yeah. are some things that we do <laughs> that you maybe just don't understand or think is funny? Yeah. Well, I guess the thing that always strikes me when I go to the U.S. is, is the size of your food portions. I go to a, I go ah, to a restaurant yeah. and I get twice as much food as I'm expecting. And whenever, I, whenever I come to the US, I come home and I put on about half a stone. It's, just, yeah. it's crazy. I just eat too much. And I've kind of had to learn, so, you know, to kind of just, it's okay to leave food on the plate. I feel bad about that because I was kind of brought up to you eat everything on the plate. Right. But whenever I go to the US, that's not a good idea for me because I end up eating far too much. So um, mm. I'm not sure it's a fault, but it's um, it's a strange thing that, that always strikes me when I when I go to the US. I'm sure there are places that have, you know, measly portions like I'm used to, but that's the way it is. <laughs> that's so funny. I feel like I hear that a lot, but it's so true. And if you don't like leftovers, yeah, then the, uh, the portions here are not for you. Yeah. Well, exactly. Yeah, because it's my that's that was always my upbringing. You know, you eat everything on the plate. And conversely, so, I remember Debbie and I going to a fancy French restaurant somewhere here in the states and looking at these little measly proportions and thinking, like, is this like a series of appetizers? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly right. I'd have been very comfortable there. You know. Yes. That's so funny. Oh my gosh. Okay, and then maybe one more thing. What are you? secretly good at like what is a secret like skill or hidden talent that we can make public today hmm. well i'm I'm a, I'm a bit of a jack of all trades i kind of hmm. dabbled in a lot of different things so i'm not sure there's many things i'm really really good at um i am a reasonable golfer oh i can yeah. okay. hit a hit a ball around a golf course reasonably well i'm not brilliant but i'm reasonably good i quite enjoy it and um I do play the odd bit of guitar every now and again. Oh, just privately cool. these days. I used to play it publicly, and um, you know, used to appear in clubs and pubs and bars and stuff. But we uh, need to get you and your buddy Tom Wright to do a duo. You both uh, on yeah, guitar and singing. Yeah, he yes. plays. He does indeed. Exactly. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I've never played with him, but um, yeah, that would make some news too. if we had Tomlin and Wright doing a duo somewhere <laughs> yeah. on, on the BBC or something. Yeah, well, that would be a stretch. You never know. I do, I do see Tim, Tom reasonably regularly because he lives not very far away from us in Oxford now. Yeah. But, um, we haven't got our guitars out recently at all yet. Not together anyway. <laughs> That's oh, that awesome. Would be, that would be fun. Well, Graham, we want to talk to you today about the Center for Cultural Witness and uh, this new website that you have, Seen and Unseen. But before we got there, I thought we might introduce our audience to a history that I don't talk about all the time. Uh not for any uh, negative reason. I just don't have opportunity to talk about it very often. And that is the connection of our diocese, Churches for the Sake of Others, to this wider, I might call it, vineyard slash Church of England story. And for me, it begins with, I just remember a lot of, not angst, that's maybe the, no, maybe angst is the right word. 
But I just remember a lot of passionate praying for this person who I'd never met called David Watson. And the Wimbers and everybody and the early vineyard movement, uh, you know, David died in 84, so which means I was like 27 years old. And I didn't know anything really at that time about what I've come to call kind of my tribe, this English evangelical, often charismatic um, people in the Church of England. You know, as a very young convert at 19, I, of course, would have thought of C.S. Lewis and John Stott and Packer and, you know, those kind of people as evangelical English Anglicans. But then, as you know, the story with Wimber and the Church of England, I got to know people like uh, John Collins. Again, I don't, I'm not sure. Maybe I met John once, but again, he was just kind of a legend to me, you know, at HTB, mm. um, you know, and then Sandy and um, Bishop David Pitches and Graham Cray at Fresh Expressions and New Wine and Soul Survivor and, you know, HTB and Alpha and Nikki and, and Rick Thorpe and you. So you know that uh, history quite well. You've been in the middle of all of it. So I want you to just take some leisurely moments and from the point of view of an insider, kind of tell us that story. When you look back now over 30 some years, what aspects of that story feel most important to you? Yeah, it's an interesting story. And I think, um, I think in some ways it goes back even beyond the 30 years mm. um, period that you've been talking about. Um, I guess it, I, I think, you know, right since the evangelical revivals of the 18th century, which, of course, mm. happened on both sides of the pond, yes. Wesley and Whitfield and so on. Mm-hmm. I often think that in, in the 19th century, I think evangelicalism generally kind of w- went in two directions. And there, there was always two parts to it. Part of it was the the kind of personal testimony, the experiential, the sense yeah. of, you know, having experienced the reality of God's grace, the reality of forgiveness, the reality of the Holy Spirit. There was that kind of experiential side of, of, of evangelicalism where you talked about personal conversion and a, and a, and a felt change, you know, that mm-hmm. it felt different to be a Christian. Yeah. But then on the other side, there was always the the kind of you know adherence to biblical orthodoxy and the sense of um, of, of the Christian doctrine being really right. important and that sense of um, uh, staying close to to, to, to Bible truth mm-hmm. and those, those were always kind of held together I think in sort of 18th 19th century evangelicalism I guess in in recent times they've maybe kind of drifted apart a little bit I mean mm. not not that you know you, you uh, but you've got churches that are more on the kind of reformed you know um, right. emphasize the sort of Bible truth side of things mm-hmm. churches that emphasize more the experiential side and I guess that's that latter half I mean, i've always felt you know uh, heritage of both of those things in my own background in fact yes. you're talking about david watson i remember i was in i was in oxford at the time when he died mm. i was a, a theological student studying alongside mm. nicky gumbel as it happens mm. and um at that time feeling a little bit sort of you know suspicious a little bit about the more experiential side uh-huh. of things but yes. then gradually uh-huh. growing into that uh, as I got to know HTB, as I got to mm-hmm. know um, the kind of charismatic tradition, so it seems to me that you know that that's become a, I think a, well, it's become a really important part of my spiritual journey, mm-hmm. and I, I think on a, on a personal level, I mean, I often think about my own journey from maybe a more maybe a sort of uh, uh, a more conservative evangelical reform stance towards mm-hmm. a more kind of openness to the charismatic side. And I think that that was because of a. I mean, I, when I was teaching at Wycliffe Hall in Oxford back in the 1980s, I would encounter quite a lot of students from the kind of charismatic HTB yeah. background, mm-hmm. and I often found they had a they had an openness to learn. There was a sort of um, they yeah. were they were desperate to to find out the kind of origins of this thing that they had discovered in mm-hmm. life. And they didn't approach um, theological training with a sense of I've got this all 
buttoned up and I just want you to confirm me and my opinions more as a, of a genuine openness to the spirit but also to the kind of theological tradition at the same time yeah. and um, so I found myself being drawn into that kind of spirituality finding it more kind of attractive and sort of more um, the kind of thing you could explore more and it was it was more fun teaching those kind of students because they were keen to yeah. learn they were keen to, yeah. to look for the life of the spirit in all different parts of the church and so that yeah. was something that was quite important to, to, to them I think. So I, I don't know if you'll remember Graham I can't quite remember the first time John went to England it might have been 80, 81, 82 seems like mm. somewhere in there so so now we're actually talking 40 years. Uh, I, I, that's subjective. But if we just think of the last 40 year period where there's been this in, intermingling with evangelical, charismatic, Anglican spirituality. Again, as you look back on that, what's been the impact on the Church of England, you think? I think it's had quite a significant impact on the Church of England. I mean, obviously, we have experienced within English Christianity a fair bit of decline over the past well, I guess 150 years, a fairly rapid decline since the 1960s. Yeah. And I, I think that decline would have been far, far steeper uh, okay. without the presence of something like the Alpha uh, Course. Interesting. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, the opportunity that gave for many people to find faith. And as, as a bishop, yeah. I would go around parishes confirming people, and more often than not, in churches of all kinds of traditions. Mm -hmm. And I would ask people the question, you know, how did you come to faith and what's your journey? And um, I'd always get them to tell me a little bit about their spiritual mm -hmm. um, spiritual tra trajectory. And, and so often the Alpha Course would play a part in it. Um, yeah. that they that's one of the places where they had a chance to explore faith mm -hmm. um so i think the alpha course has had a huge impact upon the church of england i think um the church planting movement that has come out of htb um, yes yeah. uh, has been again hugely significant that um there are many many towns cities around the country that now have thriving churches where right. before there was really not very much at all yes. um and bottom line is they have a pretty good record of planting churches that actually do thrive and grow not all new forms of church do embed themselves and really grow in time you know all kinds of experiments mm -hmm. are tried but the hdb kind of family of churches has a pretty good record of doing that and then increasingly in a, in a variety of contexts as well not mm -hmm. just in sort of you know student led right. city center churches but in quite deprived areas of the country quite mm. some areas where there's a great deal of poverty and diversity as well and so yeah. um uh, it's, it's had a profound effect. I think one of the other, just the third area, is that increasingly at the moment, one of the things that's happening within the HTB network is a much greater emphasis upon ethnic and racial diversity. Mm, um, so they have a program which is um, based in St. Melitus College, where I was involved for many mm -hmm. years, um, called the Peter Stream, which is really trying to reach out to people who would not ordinarily think of themselves the kind of people who get ordained as Anglicans right. um, because of their ethnic background or because of their educational background or gender or whatever it might be yeah. and actually actively encourage them into ministry. And so we're seeing actually a greater proportion of people from what we sometimes call global majority heritage backgrounds coming yeah. into yeah. ordained ministry in a way that they wouldn't have done before. And so those are some of the, the impacts I think it's had upon the Church yeah. of England. Yeah, that's fantastic. You gave me a flashback. I remember hearing probably from Sandy Miller the first time this phrase of redundant churches. And I remember as an American thinking, what's that? And, <laughs> you know, that whole genius that I, I, I think it was, I'm not sure it was Sandy's, but in my mind it was this genius of, hey, there are buildings around England that uh, don't really have congregations anymore. Let's, let's put a, a church planning type rector in there. So I think it's part of what I've always um, appreciated. And I think we can think now of what Rick Thorpe's doing in his church planning work. 
is I, I think a part of what's always made me admire this tribe that I've been describing is the combination of biblical faithfulness, missional innovation. So whether you think of Graham Crane, the early Fresh Expressions, or all that you just described about HDB, it was a solid missiology married to solid biblical orthodoxy and married also to the person and work of the Spirit. I just find that yep. utterly compelling. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. I think there was a within the charismatic movement, there was that rediscovery of the life of the Spirit, which was always present within evangelicalism, but maybe was not so much emphasized. And sometimes because of the kind of emphasis upon sort of um, biblical accuracy and doctrinal correctness, there was sometimes a, 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 an element of downplaying that element, which had always been part of the kind of, you know, the Wesley revivals and so on, yeah. that experiential engagement with the reality of the living Christ and the Holy Spirit. So the charismatic movement in some ways re-recovered re that. In a way that I think, again, historically, you know, you know, when Wesley was basically thrown out of the Church of England or at least shown the door when he mm -hmm. he encountered this this powerful experiential gospel, I think the charismatic movement has kind of allowed that back into the life of the Church of England in kind of yeah. in new ways to the benefit of many. And, and of course, one of the other things I think that happens in the Church of England is that the charismatic movement isn't just evangelical. You, right. know, you find yes, it in other right. parts of the church as well, mm -hmm. bringing renewal and refreshment in other, other parts of the yes. church too. All right. Uh, so, Graham, we don't usually engage in a controversy here on this podcast, but we happen to be talking just two or three days after the end of the uh, GAFCON Global South meeting in Kigali, Rwanda, uh, in which there was a, uh, a public statement issued and to which the Office of the Archbishop of Canterbury has responded. So, I, again, I, I thought of it this morning, not because of the current controversy so much, as feeling a bit of sadness that it feels like now this tribe that I've been describing between American evangelical charismatic Anglicans and, and our um, contemporaries uh, on the other side of the pond, it feels like now that there's forces um, pulling us apart that, that feels sad to me. So I'm just wondering, how's this being processed in the UK? How, how are you guys in the church of England processing these global issues? Yeah, well, I think in many ways we're going through a lot of what you went through in the American mm. Episcopal Church, what, 15 years ago or so, when yeah. you went through your mm -hmm. convulsions, if you, if you like, over this yeah. same sort of issue. In some ways, it's been coming for some time within the Church of England. We've managed to hold it together so far, but it's um, it's quite a sort of difficult time within the Church of England right now. And obviously, there's the Global Anglican Communion mm -hmm. um, aspect, and there's the Church of England. I'm just thinking about the Church of England for a moment. I think... Uh, and you're talking about this particular sort of strand of, of mm -hmm. um, Anglicanism, which is the more charismatic evangelical strand. And I think there's a variety of views within that. There are some who mm. would be more inclined towards or thinking this is a this is a, a total red line, you know, because obviously the bishops in the Church of England have. Well, yeah, we could go into exactly what's yeah. there's all, all kinds of nuances on it, yeah, but, right. you know, have um, uh, have are in the process of putting forward a proposal that certain prayers could be used for same-sex couples, uh, which include some form of blessing. And uh, again, there's different ways in which you can interpret all of that. But for some people, that really is crossing a red line, and therefore they would feel um, that if there's a, uh, you know, that if there is a kind of breakaway group within, or at least a, 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 a kind of split within the global Anglican Church, they'd definitely mm -hmm. be on, on one side of that. Yeah. Um, that. Uh, that divide. I think there are others, and I think this is something that, and I think for most people within the kind of churches that I, I know of and are connected to, they would feel on the one hand, 
they are conservative um, theologically on this question. They would find the idea of uh, blessing same-sex marriages sort of theologically incoherent and, and mm-hmm. therefore wouldn't want to go down that direction and wouldn't want to use the prayers. And the prayers are optional within the Church of England. Yet at the same time, I think within the charismatic sort of strand of the church, there's quite an emphasis on unity because the um, charismatic impulse has always been to sort of seek the, the, the life of the spirit in all forms of the church, whether that's Catholic or Orthodox or Protestant or Pentecostal or whatever it might be. And so I think there are quite a few churches that are slightly torn between that. They don't want to split off. They don't want to kind of form a new church, mm-hmm. but they don't feel easy with going along with something which seems to have crossed a bit of a line for them. Yeah. And so I think it's early days to, to work out what will happen as a result of this. I think there may well be some form of structural realignment within the Church of England to to recognise the significance of the divisions that are amongst mm-hmm. us at the moment. My hope would be that, that would be able to kind of um, keep people together in the one church, even if there's a sort of structural you know differentiation that happens within that. But I guess time will tell as to what, what will happen as a result of this. Hey, hey. Saludos, my name is Jonathan Kinberg, and we want to together invite you to our second annual Diaspora Network Conference. Our theme this year is Mutuality and Mission. What does it look like for immigrants and the broader North American church to really partner together? The conference will be on July 28th and 29th in Austin, Texas, and it's for immigrants and leaders from C4ASO who want to partner with the nations here. See you soon. So Graham, we would love to talk to you now about um, seen and unseen, Christian perspectives on just about everything. Now, when I checked out your website, I was I saw that and I was like, that seems awesome. Uh, Christian perspectives on just about anything and everything. I, I thought that that was super compelling. And so Todd and I wanted to ask you, um, First and foremost, what gave rise to the vision of this website and this work that you're doing now? So we'd just love to hear kind of your heart behind that. Yeah, thank you. Look, I've always been interested in the question of how the church tells its story in public. Mm -hmm. Um, It's good that we do lots of local evangelism and social action and and so on at parish level and at local church level. But I've always been also interested in how the church makes the case for Christian faith in public life. Mm. And um, that, that, I guess, was emphasized for me on becoming a bishop and suddenly realizing you have a voice in public. And certainly Mm -hmm. here in the UK, if you're the bishop of somewhere, people tend to listen to you because you're the bishop. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I found myself thinking again and again, you know, how do I use my voice in public? As you probably know, I got very involved in the aftermath of the Grenfell Tower fire, which is a major disaster that happened here in London back in 2017 and did a lot of media work at that time and I would often you know maybe have my two minutes on national radio and be thinking okay what do I say that's distinctively Christian in this context so those are sort of of some of the thoughts that were going around my my mind and um, a couple of years ago this idea struck me that that, the more I thought about this the more I thought that so often the Christian voice in public is either it's either rather shrill it's just not very thoughtful uh, or it's or it's silent. You just don't hear it very much. Um, uh, or it's a bit scattered. You know, it's there are voices, but they're not very well coordinated, and so on. And so, uh, and I think for us here in the UK, it's the silent one that is most apparent. Mm. I had a friend who came back from the US. Mm. Um, I was talking to some while ago. Who said the difference between the US and the UK is in the US you can't avoid the Christian voice for better or worse. Yeah. Um, but in the UK, you hardly hear it. 
Mm. And so I found myself thinking, okay, what can we do to make sure a, a thoughtful, intelligent Christian voice is heard in public? Um, you know, so often uh, in the UK, Christian faith is sort of disdained as something. You don't really want to take that seriously at all. Mm. I was listening to a, a podcast the other day by a, um, by a novelist called Paul Kingsnorth, who um, uh, he's British and he's recently come to faith in Christ and um uh, he was saying how if he if he said to his friends, you know, when I I'd become a I'd become a Buddhist or a Muslim or or whatever, they'd have said, Oh, that's that's interesting, that's really good for you. Uh in fact when he said he became a Christian, they said, What? Yeah. Why on earth would you become a Christian? Yeah. It's almost a Christian faith was something quite off the radar of, of kind of intelligent, thoughtful people. Mm-hmm. And so I began to think, okay, how might we change that? How might we change the cultural narrative? How might we change that sense of um, the Christian faith is something that actually could be taken seriously by someone who is thoughtful, intelligent, culturally attuned, asking questions about life, about direction, about politics, about culture? Uh, how might we change that? So that's really the kind of impetus behind it. Yeah. I love what you have written in your kind of introduction to this website. And you state that our conviction is that this framework, rather than closing down thinking, opens up a more expansive and energizing space for thought and acting than secular visions can offer. And I just thought that was tremendous because that's such a a pivot from the way that a lot of folks think about Christian thinking is that it's not something that's restrictive, but actually as a Christian, uh, we, as Christians, we have this framework that it really does open up so much more space for uh, thoughts and discussion. I think that that's right. I, mean, I, I wrote a book a couple of years ago called um, Navigating a World of Grace, The Promise of Generous Orthodoxy. And it was trying to kind of recapture that phrase, a generous orthodoxy, and trying to say orthodoxy uh, has, a, has a generous space, not without boundaries. It has its sure. boundaries. Right. And the boundaries, which we call heresy, are those ways of thinking and living which actually will end up destroying you if you, if you if you follow them too far. So it has its boundaries, but it gives you a kind of wide space in which to think. And I suppose what we're trying to do in, in this approach to it is sometimes apologetics in the past has been the way in which we've engaged in public witness. And sometimes apologetics, I think in the last maybe 10, 15 years, largely because of the rise of the new atheism, Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and everybody else, apologetics has become a very kind of combative kind of argumentative discipline uh, whereby it's all about you know me as a christian persuading you as someone who doesn't believe that there is a god and that jesus rose from the dead and and you know we have debates with atheists and so on and i suppose that the approach we're trying to take is a bit different from that and saying rather than uh let's have lots of articles that somehow prove that god exists or that christianity is true take a slightly different view to say well let's see how christians see the world you know what what does what does the world look like when it's lit up by the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? What does law and economics and politics and artificial intelligence and housing and town planning, what does it all look like when you see it through the eyes of Christian faith? Mm. And so on the article, on the on the website, you'll find all kinds of articles, not just about Christian doctrine. You'll find some of that. You know, we have a section which we call Creed, which is really trying to explain Christian faith to the person outside mm-hmm. the church. But there's a lot of articles on artificial intelligence, on the Russian-Ukraine war, upon the coronation, a big issue for us in, you know, going on in, yeah. the, uh, mm-hmm. uh, in the UK at the moment. Articles on, um, on, on the kind of things that, you know, I, I was reading today, something we're putting up soon on transhumanism, issues that everybody's thinking about, everybody's talking about. 
And we're trying to say, okay, how do Christians see those? And actually trying to get people to see the world through Christian eyes and saying, actually, the world is a much richer and more colorful place when you see it in this way. It gives you uh, a much more healthy way of thinking and living and speaking than secular visions, which tend to kind of narrow you down. And I guess the, uh, uh, you know, within um, secular visions sort of cramp you down into a purely materialistic view of the world where it's all yeah. about what you can see and feel and that's it but actually the christian faith opens you out to the seen and the unseen that's the point of the title of the the website we're interested in the scene the things that everybody knows about law economics politics creation nature and so on but we're also interested in the unseen realities you know the um the, the unseen realities of god the the angelic hosts the uh, mm-hmm. reality of christ those unseen realities that make sense of the scene and um, so that's the kind of approach we're trying to take. So you touched on this a little bit, but tell us more about sort of the targeted audience of this work and what the vision and the hoped for outcomes are. Because from my understanding, it, it seems like this is meant to be something accessible to Christians and to non-Christians as well. So tell us more about the audience. Well, the, the audience of the website is, and we've done quite a bit of work on this, it's, it's the person who is uh, outside the church uh, who is interested in ideas. They are the kind of people who would maybe listen to a podcast, they'd read articles on an opinion website. They haven't closed their mind to things. They are open to the possibility there may be a God or a spiritual realm out there somewhere. But they're pretty skeptical about the church. They don't think the church has got much to offer. Right. Um, they may be a bit burned by church experience uh, that they've had. Um, but there's a kind of openness. So we're not addressing the kind of hardline atheists who made up their mind and who right. there's, there's really not much point in t- talking with them. That we're not primarily addressing the Christian audience um, who are already, you know, paid up Christians. Although hopefully there's stuff there that, that Christians can find really helpful. Right. They they're going to be key people to pass on this to other people as well. So we say to all of our contributors, all our writers, all our podcast guests. Think of the person outside the church. This is not another internal church website where we're not going to be running articles on how to plant churches or how to run your prayer meeting or or how to sure. raise money for your church or whatever. Right. We're all we're only going to be interested in things that would be of interest to a person outside the church as well. So even if you're writing about a Christian doctrine, you're writing about the incarnation, or you're writing about the right. doctrine of the Trinity or whatever, always write it in such a way that makes it accessible to someone outside the church. And so that's really the, the kind of audience for it. Um, and I guess the the vision is is that is that greater openness to the gospel yeah. that when it, this isn't direct evangelism in the way that say the Alpha Course is, um, but it is changing the cultural narrative. So that one of the signs of of success for the website would be in five years' time, you ask someone to come to your church or go on an Alpha Course, and they're just that much more likely to say yes because they said, oh yeah, Kevin, I, I read I read an article the other day that actually made me think a bit, made me realise that Christians have got more to say about the world than I thought. And it's the kind of shift, I mean, the way I describe it sometimes is, um, I think the time this happened before was in the 1940s, uh, because during the Second World War, there was a big debate here in Europe um, on what's going to rebuild civilization after the Second World War. And at that time, you had all these Christian figures who were deeply involved in that debate. So you had C.S. Lewis giving broadcast mm-hmm. talks on the radio, which became mere Christianity. You had yeah. Dorothy Sayers doing plays about the life of Jesus. You had T.S. Eliot writing mm-hmm. The Four Quartets, this rich Christian vision of the world. You had W.H. Auden as the, a newly Christian poet. You had Evelyn Waugh. You had all these figures 
many of them weren't theologians, they were novelists, they were poets, they were mm-hmm. um, artists, they were philosophers and so on. You had William Temple, the Archbishop of Canterbury here. Mm-hmm. They, they painted this rich, imaginative picture of the world from a Christian perspective. Um, and of course, of course, you had Tolkien as well, dreaming up Middle Earth at the same time. Now, the mm-hmm. interesting thing about that yeah. is the only period of church growth has been in the UK over the last 150 years is actually the late 1940s and early 1950s. Billy Graham came here in the early 1950s. And I think yeah. my my sort of interpretation of this is that Billy Graham was reaping the harvest of that rich, imaginative, mm-hmm. um, intellectually and spiritually compelling picture of the Christian faith that was painted by these people back in the early 1940s. And that's what I think we're trying to do. We're trying to paint a rich, imaginative, you know, compelling, attractive picture of Christian faith. That will lead to that kind of cultural openness to Christian faith that we saw back in those days. Yeah, I didn't think of it, uh, Graham, when Mickey and I were preparing for this, but hearing you talk, it makes me think of something that I perceive. You know, I came to faith and have been trying to help people come to faith and grow in faith since I was 19, and I just turned 67. So, you know, that's, that's going on 50 years. And it feels like a lot has changed in what I sometimes call like the plausibility structure for Christianity. Yeah. Yep. Uh, like when I was young and in the U S anyway, there was still some social momentum towards religion and church. I remember bumper stickers, find a church and join it. There was some social capital still for Christianity. So it sounds to me that a part of what you're doing, uh, at least in my words would be reconstructing a plausibility system for Christianity in Europe. I think that's exactly right. And I think that's about, I mean, I, I'm writing a biography of Blaise Pascal at the moment, mm. the 17th century French philosopher and apologist. And and I guess his approach to convincing skeptics of his day was not, not so much to make Christianity believable, but to make it attractive. Mm. So he wasn't primarily yeah. trying to get a mount arguments as to why Christianity was somehow true, but it was to make it something that was so appealing that people couldn't ignore it. Now, there is an element of making it believable. That's that sense of, um, uh, of making it something that is that is a realistic option that people think, OK, there is there is some intellectual kind of rigor to this. Um, Christians do think about it. they're not unthinking people, um, yeah. but it's making it attractive, making it something that mm-hmm. because Again, Pascal's approach was, you know, make it attractive, make good men wish it were true, and then show that it is. Right. But the first step is making it attractive. Yeah. And that's what I think we have to do by painting a rich picture of the world as as seen through the eyes of the gospel. So I think it is about making Christian faith something that is a, a realistic, plausible option for thoughtful, intelligent people today, especially that kind of younger yeah. demographic for whom it's often doesn't yes. feel like that right now. Well, if I think of Pascal or, or what you guys are doing in the center and in this uh, website, Seen and Unseen, it's not something that we have to pick and choose, either make it lovely or make it true. But I think in terms of practical evangelization, it feels to me like there's a sequence right now that doesn't throw out classic apologetics. Yeah. But once somebody can see that it's lovely, they're no longer asking questions about biblical authority through cynicism. They're saying, wow, how is it that this ancient text feels to read me? Like, I don't feel like I'm reading it. It, I feel like this text reads me. And, you know, and then we say, well, you know, the Bible's alive and powerful and sharper than any double-edged sword, et cetera. So it feels to me like there's a sequence in play more than a choose one or the other. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, again, Pascal's thing, you know, make it attractive, make people wish it were true and then show that it is. 
it's a lot easier to show that it is true once people want to want to believe it. Yes. Because his, his great insight was, you know, we tend to believe what we want to believe. Mm. That's the way we are as human beings. It's that Augustinian insight that desire yeah. comes first. Yeah. Right. And it's making people want to believe it because it is something so attractive and so compelling. Yeah. Mm. Amen. So, Graham, we realize that seen and unseen is rooted in your particular context. And, you know, we're over here on the other side of the world, but I actually think that this work that you are doing and the center is doing is actually a gift to the wider church as well. There's always something for us to learn from other Christians and vice versa. So how do you imagine that the work of the center and seen and unseen can assist us here on this side of the world as C4SO clergy and churches? Yeah, I think there's a couple of ways in which we hope it will be of real benefit to people in the churches in your diocese. So I guess what one is that um, it's material that will help Christians in your churches recognize that actually Christian faith has got something to say to all the issues that address us today. I think it's often true that people, when people leave church, when they drift out of church, they don't do that because they've stopped believing in God or believing in the incarnation or the atonement or the resurrection or whatever. Mm. They, they leave church because church and Christian faith no longer seems relevant to the things that matter to them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as they get older, they have children, they have families, they have jobs, mm-hmm. they have responsibilities, they have their sport, their social life and so on. And, and so often if they can't see any connection between their Christian faith and the rest of their life, gradually over time, and I think this happened during the pandemic quite a bit, people just stopped going to church and they go, why did I ever go in the first place? Yeah. If my faith mm-hmm. has got nothing to say for the rest of my life, then... Right. Why do I bother? And so one of the things I think it can do is to help people see, well, actually, yes, Christian faith has got something to say about all the issues that we're thinking about in our culture today. Um, so I think it can, it, one of the things is it can build a sense of confidence in the intellectual rigor and attractiveness and relevance of Christian faith to these issues. But I think the other thing it can do is it's the kind of material, hopefully, you can pass on to someone who uh, doesn't yet have a faith. I mean, I guess one of the, um, yeah. uh, as I say, one of the uh, aims of the of the website is always to write for the person sort of outside the Christian faith. And so um, it's kind of immature. If you read something that you think, hey, yeah, I know somebody might be interested in that, you can pass it on. So for example, we've got a, an article on the website at the moment, which is, is entitled How Shakespeare Seasoned Justice with Mercy. Um, mm-hmm. It's an article about Shakespeare's plays and how he um, managed to to address this issue of justice and mercy. Now, you know, if you've got someone who's a, you know, a sort of liter- literature major and, you know, who spends a lot of time reading Shakespeare, it's the kind of thing you could pass over to them and say, you know, take a read of this. And they could suddenly yeah. say, OK, maybe Christian faith has got something to say about Shakespeare. It's got something to say about justice and mercy. And so mm-hmm. um, hopefully it's both material that will can strengthen and build confidence in church members, but also the kind of material that you can quite easily and quite happily pass on to someone who doesn't yet have a faith and yeah. will open their eyes to right. a Christian perspective on the world. So I'm I'm aware from our earlier talks, Graham, that um, your authors will not just be people from the United Kingdom, but that you're recruiting no. authors from around the world. Mm-hmm. And that just from my perusing of the website, yes, like you say, you may have uh, something that feels like a one-off to Americans or Asians or Africans or Latin, you know, people from Latin world, like monarchy. But much of what you're writing about are the issues all of us are dealing with human sexuality, immigration, race, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. So yes, there'll be the occasional thing that feels like an English one-off, but this is something everybody can benefit from, right? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. I mean, they're, they're the issues that you know, even Americans get interested in our coronation from time to time. Of course. Yes. And, are you uh, kidding? <laughs> I watch all the Royal weddings. 
Well, yeah. There you go. Yeah, you'll be glued to the TV on May the 6th. So, you know, so exactly the, the, the kind of issues that will speak across the English speaking world, wherever you may be. And we're also open to kind of people writing for us as well. We're looking to get yeah. people who have gifts in communication, who have a passion for the church's public witness. And uh, you want to get involved in that. So if you've got listeners, people in your networks, you mm-hmm. think, um, yeah, I'd, I'd love to write for something like that. I've got something to say to the world and I can write in a way that's that's appealing. We want to keep the, the standard of the writing high so that it's a good, it's enjoyable to read. You know, if, yeah. you know what it's like when you go on, a, don't go on to a website and you lose the will to live within the first paragraph. It doesn't make you yeah. want to carry on reading. So we want yeah. to make the, yeah. the writing good. Um, so if people have got something to say, they've got a gift in writing, please get in touch and let us know. So Graham, kind of as we close, we kind of wanted to end this on a on an encouraging note and a hopeful one. So we just wanted to hear who is encouraging you these days, or maybe what is encouraging you these days in your faith? What is giving you hope for the future of the church? Well, I think a, a number of things. I mean, the um, I mean, what, one thing that's encouraging me at the moment, one of the things we've started within the Centre for Cultural Witness here in London is something called the, uh, the Cultural Witness Fellowship. The idea is to find those academic, Christian academics, whether theologians or other disciplines, who have a, 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 a commitment to the world of scholarship, a commitment to the life of prayer and worship, and seeing their scholarship as connected to prayer and worship, and also a passion for the public witness of the church. Now, not all Christian academics have those, and that's they shouldn't. It's not necessary for all, all Christians to have that. But um, every now and again, you come across someone who is called to be an academic. They called to the life of prayer and they're also passionate about the public witness of the church we gathered together a group of around 30 such academics we had a gathering here in Lambeth Palace a few weeks ago where it was time for some worship and some prayer and some learning together giving some papers learning um, about this question of public witness I, I found that a really encouragement of a day that there's a um, beginnings of a stirring of a movement within the kind yeah, of academic lovely. community yeah. Yeah. Um, being an academic theologian or a Christian academic is not just a means of earning a living and writing the odd book and so on but actually is part of the public witness of the church and yeah. uh, so that's encouraging me I think I'm also I'm also encouraged by a, I think it, it's a kind of an openness to faith in culture it's not yet changed into you know um people flocking to the church in the UK, but I, I sense a, a real openness to, to the possibility of faith and an interest in it. Um, just this morning, I, I did an interview with um, the BBC News here, uh, their religion um, unit that that were really interested in the kind of religious significance of the coronation. And they wanted to come and oh, talk yes. to me about mm-hmm. that service, which is not just a kind of, you know, constitutional affair but it's a deeply you know, it's, a, it's full of religious symbolism and christian meaning and it's a like a portrayal of a christian idea of government and of what good authority and leadership is all about they wanted to talk about that um and uh, and i i see that you know quite a lot of the time around the mm. place just a, a kind of genuine openness to the um you know to, to moving beyond the purely material beyond a kind of that sort of slightly old-fashioned atheism which was just very dismissive of any idea of god or spirituality whatsoever now i think there's a lot to be done with that um and uh, that's something that we're trying to address a little bit in this ministry we started here but i am quite encouraged by that sign of openness to the spiritual and hope and pray that it's the sign of something much bigger that will come in, in the future in terms of a turning towards faith and, and towards jesus christ in our culture yeah. Amen.
So Graham, is seen and unseen the best way for people to interact with the Center for Cultural Witness? Is, would that be the way to start? Yep, that'd be the place to go. Go on to okay. seenandunseen.com. That's the um, website. Um, I mean, if people are interested in uh, in a little bit more, maybe doing some writing for us, then uh, uh, the best way would be to contact info at culturalwitness.org. So um, I-N-F-O, info at culturalwitness, all one word, dot org. Yeah. And um, people can get in touch that way. But um, So yeah, but seen and unseen is the best way to kind of get into that and just explore it, um, give give your feedback. One of the things we're interested to know is, you know, does it does it work across the, across the pond in the US? You know, we're yeah. based here in the UK. Uh, we're keen to know from American readers, this is something mm. that's really helpful. What would be useful for us to write yeah. about? If yeah. you've got ideas, then feed them through to us. Yep. Great. Okay. Well, Graham, I'm glad my friend Mickey got to meet my friend Graham. Yes. Uh, I'm thankful yeah, for our, our friendship personally, Graham. Thankful for the way you've conducted your life. Thank you. Thankful for the life of your mind, the life of your heart, and how this is all now being poured into the Center for Cultural Witness and Seen and Unseen. So thanks for being our guest Thank today. Thank you. Thank you, Todd. Thank you, Mickey. Really great to see you. And um, all the best uh, prayers for you as you go on from here. Thanks so much for tuning in to the C4SO podcast. If you like what you heard, please feel free to share this episode and subscribe and leave a review. It helps us to get the word out. Thanks.